Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 24th, 2021, and this is episode 2899 of the Survival Podcast. We'll cross the 2900 tomorrow and be only 100 episodes away from 3,000 episodes. I, I, I have to believe... There's not a tremendous number of podcasts that hit 3,000 episodes. I don't know what, how many there are, and I don't know how many will eventually do it, but I, I think it's pretty damn landmark, and maybe we need to start planning something for episode 3,000 of the Survival Podcast. I'm not sure what to do with it yet, but it just seems like that's... It's kind of like 3,000 hits in baseball. You're not the only one that did it, but it sure as hell means something when you do. And I want to thank you guys that have supported me all these years because I couldn't have done it without you. I couldn't have done it without you, so thank you for that. Um, here's what we're going to be talking about today. It's Expert Council Q&A show, of course. I got a, I guess you call it a pinch hitter, maybe designated hitter, because I don't think it, it'll be unlikely that I might not go back to this guy again. And honestly, if I got enough questions for him, I would probably bring him on Expert Council permanently. I know he would do it. Brian Norton, he's been on the show at least three times, and he's got a lot of experience in the cannabis industry, a lot of experience in the coffee industry. He's good, you know, like friendly competition with uh, Nicole Sauce. He's just an awesome dude. Squatch Fest, we had him on talking about Squatch Fest and Float Fest, just consummate side hustler and hustler. And uh, I got a question on growing your own cannabis outdoors. Uh, it's about to be made legal to do so, I guess, with some limitations in West Virginia. And uh, it's either Virginia, don't go doing something without checking. I don't remember if it's Virginia or West Virginia, but wherever, somewhere, in one of the Virginias. And a person asked a question about growing it, and I sent that over to John Bush, and Bush is like, I got, I don't grow, I don't know, it's Texas, I don't go to the jail. So I sent it off to Brian, and he's got a lot of experience on this, so he's got a pretty good answer on it, and some of the things to be worried about in a climate like uh, northeast United States doing it outside. Uh, next up, I've got Derek Bonpietro on shopping for a new midsize SUV. I'll throw a little monkey wrench in there. The guy's got it narrowed down to two, and I'm going to throw my monkey wrench in for third option. Uh, Dr. Ken Berry is going to talk about uh, glucose testing uh, for uh, women during pregnancy. Sean Mills is going to talk about two things, uh, solar pow panel mounting angles. And then USB rechargeable batteries is two totally separate questions. And the USB rechargeable battery is exactly what it sounds like. It's like a double-A battery with a USB port, and you recharge the battery itself without a charger. Uh, we're going to talk about treating, ivermectin, treating COVID with ivermectin with Doc Bones. Tim the Toolman Cook is going to give you a grab bag of handyman gear and business questions. Uh, John Bush has a lightning round of crypto and privacy questions. And then I've got my quote of the day to, to wrap the show up with. And with the recent passing of John McAfee, um, that's, that's what I'm going to talk about. And I'm not going to talk about what happened. Because I am one of those crazy-ass people that doesn't start talking about what happened before he knows, at least to a degree, what the hell happened. There's a lot of speculation. I do think it's likely that McAfee did not kill himself. He certainly said very recently, if I end up dead, it ain't from suicide. And then he ends up dead and supposedly suicide in a Spanish jail. Um, 
But I'm not going to start throwing out claims and stuff before we have more information. But I do have a fantastic quote by him to kind of honor his memory. The quote is, to kind of set the stage in the beginning, I'll come back to it at the end and give you commentary on it, the ones who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones that do. And I would say McAfee definitely changed the world. But I'm going to talk about, well, I'll talk about it when I talk about it. With that, let's go ahead and jump on into this. Start off with Growing Your Own Cannabis with Brian Norton. I know not everybody can do this, but, well, a lot of people can now. Hi, Jack. This is Brian with Food Forest Farms. Super psyched to answer a question about growing cannabis. So this question says, This coming July 1st, Virginia has legalized cannabis for recreational use. I would like to take advantage of the hot and humid Virginia summer and grow cannabis in outdoor containers using off-the-shelf products. Do you recommend any brands specifically through experience? Any other tips would be appreciated. Examples of potting soil, fertilizer, pest control. Okay, let's start at the very beginning. Indoor versus outdoor. Good job on the outdoor. Sunlight's free. UVs are plentiful. Um, Okay, let's talk about your area. Southeast Virginia, hot and humid. So your biggest hurdle the whole time of growing is going to be keeping your plants thinned out enough to allow for airflow through the entire plant. Um, molding is going to be your big issue come the end of the year. Well, and even even growing. Anything over about 80 degrees, the plants start going into uh, trying to cool themselves down mode versus growing mode. And then hot and humid combo leads to a lot of mold issues, especially in tight buds at the end of the year. So... Uh, let's see, you say you're going to, you wanted to do it in, in, uh, containers. So that begs the question, why a container? If you have to move them around, get the biggest container you can move. If that means buy an eight inch caster wheel so you can run them through a field to put them indoors or something. I, I don't know why they have to be in containers, but 50 gallons would be fantastic. Um, I wouldn't do anything smaller than 20. I, myself, uh, you're going to get a 20-foot tree in the earth. You're going to get a 12-foot tree in a container. So depends uh, if it's just for you, how much quantity you want, how much quantity you want per plant. I don't know the rules back there if you're limited on numbers or space or time or whatever. So uh, let's see. Um, You know what? That's a good place to start. So outdoors, um, kick-ass soil. So I use uh, like 50% compost soils, like heavy and duck shit and hay, uh, well aerated. Worms are living and thriving in the soil. That's how I know it's good. Um, So, yeah, create active living soil um, and then do basically nothing. Outdoor plants, they will, the pests will take care of themselves, right, because you haven't created an acre forest of monocrop cannabis where every pest in the world is going to zero in on you. So just make it part of your garden. Let everything take care of itself. For outdoor, I would do absolutely nothing except work on trimming it for maximum ventilation. Um, If you want more tips, I'm at foodforestfarms.com. If you go to the bottom of any of those pages, the contact me goes to me. Um, Just hit me up. Uh, Happy to help coach anybody out there. 
good on you for growing outside. Um, cannabis uh, will basically take care of itself if you let it. You just need to basically work with your environmental conditions to maximize its potential in your area. All righty. Ask me some more questions, and I will give you some more answers. This is Brian with Food Forest Farms signing off. Thanks for letting me pinch it, Jack. Well, I'll just say the issues of dealing with mold uh, tracks with everything we've ever discussed on the show whenever we've had somebody discuss this. I had um, about a year, I guess, ago a guy that, that does it, uh, grows uh, aquaponic cannabis, specifically CBD cannabis, uh, in a really badass greenhouse setup, and he said 95% of the uh, labor is pruning. Uh, to deal with that airflow issue. So that, that tracks and some good advice there. Uh, next up, uh, some advice on shopping for a, a midsize SUV from Derek Von Pietro. I'll, I'll throw my monkey wrench in at the end, but I won't make a big case for it. I'll just say I would do this instead. Happy Thursday, TSP listeners. It's not Friday. It's going to take a couple weeks to get used to that. I've got a question from Mike about cars. Let's get the show started. Derek, I am considering getting a new vehicle and need another opinion. I currently have a Daily Driver 2015 Silverado 1500 LT double cab four-wheel drive with a 5.3 that I drive about 20 miles per day. This truck has served me well, but has been making an intermittent clunk in the rear end, maybe tranny. Can I say tranny? You can say tranny, but it's disgusting. And I'm a bit worried about holding on to this truck for much longer. I also realize, though, I do haul my camping gear approximately 500 pounds and maybe 700 pounds of elk meat in addition. I never tow anything, so I'm thinking this might be too much truck and too much gas used for a daily driver. I also really miss the interior cargo space of my 99 Tahoe. I've been thinking about a mid-sized SUV, and I need more room. I can always get a small trailer if it's truly needed. I've thus far narrowed it down to a Ford Explorer or maybe a Chevy Traverse. I am attracted to the Traverse because of the interior cargo room, and I think it's a good-looking car. The Explorer is probably tried and true, but it's a Ford. I'm a Chevy guy from birth, but the CVT transmission worries me. I'm open to any other options as well. Any help, guidance, or insight will be greatly appreciated. Thank you, Mike, from Phoenix. All right. Well, let's start off with what you got. You got pretty standard fare, half-ton Chevy Silverado with 5.3. That's tried and true. Now, 5.3 is a great engine. You have a 4L60 transmission, which, although not the best thing in the world, is certainly pretty good. Now, that also has a 10-bolt rear axle, which has been out for decades, and it has sucked for decades. But other than that, Fairly, fairly good vehicle. Now, before we dive into new car purchasing, let's kind of review what you got going on with this. So you say it's got an intermittent clunk in the rear end, possibly transmission. So intermittent clunk definitely tells me that it's going to be challenging to find. So typically when something wears out, it's going to make a clunk all the time. So when you say it's intermittent, is it happening every once in a while? Or is it happening like when you change direction forward to reverse? Something like that. So I don't have a great description of what clunk exactly it is, but let me go through a couple of things that will cause that problem. Engine mounts, transmission mount. Sometimes when you get on the throttle, off the throttle, those particular items, when they loosen up, can make a clunk. Or they'll allow the engine and transmission to move around enough to make something else clunk. Transmission clunk, if you've got a hard part like a gear or bearing inside and it's clunking, it's going to do that pretty much all the time. But you might have a shifting problem that's causing it to flare and then go into gear hard. That might be giving you something like a clunk. So in other words, you've got a shifting issue. And that could be something like the clutches and brakes inside the transmission, the friction materials. Or you've got some, some something electronic that's causing it to shift hard. Moving along down the line, 
universal joint on the drive shaft go bad, so it'll start to loosen up. Sometimes you'll get like a shuddering while you're in certain speeds or certain amounts of throttle. You'll, you'll feel the vibration in the floorboard. And then we go down to the, the last part, which is the axle. And so you've got a set of gears, the ring and pinion, and then you've got the differential piece, which kind of splits the power left and right. And, and the 10 bolt differential is very weak and depending on which one you got can be troublesome as well, like if it's a govlock. The easiest thing for this type of clunk is maybe just set the parking brake, put the vehicle in neutral, make sure it's not running, turn it off, chalk the wheels so that way it's safe to slide on under there and just start grabbing stuff. Grab the drive shaft, rotate it back and forth by hand, move it up, down, left, right and just put some pressure on it. See if you can feel some play in those universal joints. See if you feel the play more towards the rear end. So in other words, you're rotating the drive shaft by hand. The wheels are stationary. They're being held by the parking brake. And you can feel that play in the actual axle itself. So you can kind of narrow it down. And that'll give you a good idea. Or you can just take this to a, a good driveline mechanic and they can do the same thing. And I mean, what's the worst case? So you've got a truck, 2015, possibly have it paid off or you're rounding out the payments at this point. You're going to spend one, two, three thousand dollars. I mean, you got a lot of truck. You don't have to drive it very often or very far. And if it costs you a couple bucks to keep it going, it might be worthwhile. All right, let's talk new vehicle purchasing. I don't know if you were shopping new or used. Now, I'm just looking up these two vehicles and we'll start with the Chevy Traverse. You put in Traverse issues, the first article comes up on MotorBiscuit.com named the worst Chevy Traverse model year you should never buy. Probably not the best way to start out. That article's got a pretty long line of pretty severe issues, uh, so I would do a lot of research if you're leaning towards the Traverse model. There's not a lot of great feedback on this particular vehicle. Now, I don't know if you're buying new or used, but if you think you're going with the Traverse, there seems to be a lot better years than others with the engine transmission and even like a crack in the subframe or engine cradle or something like that. That's some crazy stuff. A lot of expensive stuff in that list, so I would be doing my due diligence if you're going to pick that car. Now you look up the Explorer, seems to get a little bit better reviews. People are really complaining about maybe the fuel economy is not as quite as good as, as what it's getting according to the EPA rating. There's a lot of talk about the electronics having issues and vehicle braking or surging or shuttering and doing all kinds of weird stuff. But there's really not a lot as far as catastrophic engine transmission failure as much as the Traverse. So there's certainly some negative feedback, but I'd say not as bad as the other one. Now, here's the deal when it comes to buying a new or previously enjoyed model. you, you got to do your research. You're a different person than me. Your likes are different. You said you're a Chevy guy compared to the Ford vehicle, so obviously that's going to influence your decision. you got to sit in all of them. you got to drive them. you got to touch all the buttons, figure out what's good for you. Pick up a couple of car drivers or, or the you know vehicle review magazines or get online and look at consumer reports to see what the best, what the worst are. When you're looking at a midsize SUV, the 4Runner is probably going to top the list in any of the lists just because it's got such great resale value. The fit and finish is really good, good styled vehicle, and, you know, the Toyota reliability. Personally, I think they're fetching a little more money than what they're worth actually, but that also helps with the resale value. So that's probably the number one for the most part if you look at a lot of reviews. Now, from what you described for your usage, it doesn't sound like you need a larger SUV or like a full body on frame. So like an SUV built on a truck chassis, that would be something like the 4Runner. You could probably go with a car-based SUV. And since you're open to using like a small utility trailer, when you need that extra space or capacity, it's a perfect fit. You're going to get better fuel economy. The price point entry is going to be a lot lower for something smaller like that. 
So I think based on what you gave me, I'd recommend a car-based SUV. Now, let's throw a curveball out there. Ford Maverick is coming out, I think, in a couple of months, and this looks like a pretty good option based on what you gave me. This is a four-door pickup truck, but it's more of a car-based vehicle, so think Honda Ridgeline, maybe a little bit smaller, Subaru Baja. Now, base model is going to be a hybrid, so you're going to get pretty good fuel economy, and they start in the 20,000 range, and if you want like an XLT with a lot more stuff, you're in the 25 range. If you want all-wheel drive, you can't get the hybrid, you can get the EcoBoost, so less fuel economy, but the all-wheel drive is an option at that point. But price point, they're pretty good. You know, you're going to be 20000 for the base model, maybe 30000 for the all the boxes checked, higher end, all the features and technology stuff. Pretty good. Now, this is a new one that's coming out in a couple months. Might want to hold off to see what the offering is, but i throw that one in as, as a curveball. So to recap, option one, you're buying a new or slightly used vehicle, car-based SUV, crossover. Option two, get like a crossover pickup truck, like a Maverick, Ridgeline or something, so that way it's kind of the best of both worlds. You get some cargo capacity with the pickup bed, but yet you're still kind of a car and a little bit easier on the fuel. Option number three, stick with what you got. Fix your pickup truck. It's a known quantity. You know what you got. Get it repaired so that clunk is no longer there. It's reliable. It's probably already paid off, so put a little bit of money in it. Keep it going, and maybe think about getting like a little sidecar, so... A little tiny car, good fuel economy, cheap to run, all that good stuff. And maybe keep the pickup truck as your backup vehicle. So like you're going camping, hunting, whatever, you can take the truck. And since it's still like a 2015, you know, you got a lot of life left in that thing. So maybe that is option three. Good luck with the shopping. Check out the affordable DC generators page if you're in the market for an affordable DC power supply solution. Jack did a shout out a few episodes ago for questions and you guys hit me up. I got a bunch on deck greatly appreciate it guys love being on the show take care so i i know the monkey wrenches i guess double that i'm about to throw you can go well you've owned both there's a reason um first of all for what you're doing i would look at stepping up to a truck frame based suv mid-size because you said mid-size not crossover the traverse is a crossover and I'm just going to straight up say, I think they're freaking garbage, personally. And I'll leave it at that. Um, if you're going to step up, and the Explorer is kind of trying to step up, sort of, um, if you go drive a Forerunner and you drive an Explorer, you will never, ever, ever Infinity buy an Explorer. And the resale value, whether you're buying a really good lease return, low mileage used vehicle, or a brand new one, the resale value holding of the Forerunner will make it cost less over the lifetime of the vehicle, because the the, the Explorer will be worth absolute dog shit by the time it's got 100,000 miles on it, on, on a monetary basis, and I'm just, that's just it we looked at the Explorer when I bought two Forerunners both times. I went, let's go back and see. And with nope, 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 no. I mean, just no. I mean, just no. I'm sorry, no. Uh, now, if you're going to go with a crossover, I would look at um, a Subaru Outback. And I can tell you that I put 500 pounds of, of chicken feed in the back of my Outback, and it drove Liger 1 no problems at all. It also squatted it enough that if I'd put another 
150, 200 pounds, and I think I might have rubbed wheels on the on the on the wheel wells. Uh, so if you're going to go with a car frame SUV crossover type thing, I'd look at an Outback. And you know, there's if you're looking in the thirty thousand dollar to thirty five thousand dollar new vehicle cost range, which some of the stuff you were talking about gets you close to that anyway, uh, and you want bigger. One of the best values on the road, in my opinion, I don't own one I never have, but I drove one when I decided on the Outback, and we just didn't need it, is Subaru Forester. And I know you I'm, you know, Ford guy, Chevy guy, whatever, made in America. I've owned it all. And in that class of vehicle, Subaru, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, Subaru and Toyota embarrass the competitors when you look at the competitors at the price point. In my opinion, there's your monkey wrenches. I'm sorry to do it to you, but and it might be a cost issue because if you're looking at buying a used one, right? Then yes, you're going to save a lot of money by buying a Ford Explorer, Exploder, Exploder, right? You are because they don't hold the real resale value. And if that's what you have to do, then great, I understand. If you're going to buy new, you're not going to pay any less unless you're buying cash, maybe. Um. Toyota will, and if you can do a lease, Toyota leasing Forerunners, it, it's it's just a sweet deal because the damn thing holds its value. So the end of lease terms are great. So there's your. I'm sorry, but yeah, I gotta say it. Next up, let's talk about solar tilt. What the hell is solar tilt? The tilt of the solar panel. Do we tilt it? Do we lay it flat on the roof? Whatever. It depends. It depends, and Sean's going to tell you what it depends on, and USB rechargeable batteries. Here we go, Sean Mills on that. Hey guys, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and I've got a couple questions to answer for you today. Uh, first one, Sean, should solar panels lay flat on a roof, or do they need to be elevated at one end to face the sun? Details. For a number of reasons, my house is not located in a suitable location for solar panels. My shop, however, does get decent sun on it throughout the day. My shop is a 30 by 48 pole barn style building. The roof ridge runs north to south. That means the east side of the shop faces shop roof faces the sun in the morning, and the west side of the shop roof faces the sun in the afternoon. Should the solar panels be elevated on their northern end so they get more sunlight throughout the entire day? If so, what are the additional impacts of that implementation? Increased weight, increased cost, difficulty of installation and maintenance, etc. Does elevating the solar panels on one end allow for denser installation, or is that not a significant benefit? Thanks, Eric. Eric, uh, for maximum efficiency, panels should be mounted with an azimuth as close to 180 degrees due south as possible, but never more than 45 degrees off due south and at a tilt that varies from 0 to 40 degrees depending on where in the US you are, what kind of shade considerations you have, etc. Um, what you're trying to do when you mount a solar panel to maximize its efficiency is at some point throughout the day you want the angle of irradiance. So essentially if you drew a straight line from your solar panel to the sun where a proton comes out of that sun, you would want that proton flying in a direct line and hitting your solar panel at a 90 degree angle to the face of its panel. Okay. Now, there's very few times throughout the year when you're actually going to be doing that, particularly if you have a fixed tilt system. 
But if you design your system for that, you say, okay, on this day, we will have a perfect 90 degree angle of irradiance from the sun to the face of the solar panel. Then over the course of a full year of generation, you're going to maximize your production. Okay. Now, in some parts of the country, you might get more cloudy days during certain parts of year. Uh, or you may need to generate more, a higher percentage of the available electricity in the spring or the winter. Um, or, or the, or the, you know, then the summer, right? Because that's typically what we do is we say, okay, to maximize our annual production, we really kind of focus on summer production and we pick an angle somewhere between perfect summer and perfect spring and fall. And, and we stay there year round. Um, you know, if you can't do that, that's fine. But that's kind of the theory behind how we design the angle and the tilt of, uh, the panels. So, um, you know, in the application that you mentioned, you're going to get the best bang for your buck by elevating the northern end of the panels as you have suggested. Uh, personally, I think the best way to do this would be to put it in put in a manually adjustable system that you can adjust about four times per year. You know, and I'm thinking in my mind using like that angle iron stuff that looks like an erector set that's a 90 degree with holes drilled in it. And you can kind of build your own mounting system, mount your panels to it, and then adjust it throughout the year. Um, to me, that's that's the mo the best way to do it. Uh, you know, you can go buy these special mounting systems that actually cost more per panel than the panel themselves, uh, and they do work. You know, in the situation where you're limited with space and limited with where you can put these things. That's why they make these these products. They make these products to to market specifically to people who are in the type of um, uh, situation that you're in. Uh, through most of the world, when they're in this type of situation, they put smaller systems in, uh, just because they're spending a significant amount of their budget on mounting. And so, you know, just something to consider. You know, here in the U.S., we just you know, <laughs> the fire isn't big enough. We just pour more gas on it, right? Um, so if you're looking at kind of filling that roof up, one of the things you want to think about is that uh, doing that is going to reduce the amount of panels you can get because you need to account for the shadow that each row is going to cast. So you have a row of panels, um, you know, aimed towards the sun, and then you have to figure out based on the angle that you're putting them at how long of a shadow it's going to throw. And then just outside of that shadow is where you want the bottom of your next panel to be. Um, that being said, it is going to be worth it due to the increased efficiency. The, what you described, if you were to just flat mount your panels, you'd get almost nothing compared to the amount of possible generation you would get if you put them at uh, the correct tilt. Um, now, that increased weight is going to be compensated by the reduction in panels. Um, you know, the maintenance on any roof-mounted system is going to be tricky, but that's no trickier than any other, um, you know, than a flat mount, for example, to a pitched roof. Um, as a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say, because you're going to have a space in between your panels for the shadow, it might actually be easier because that's going to kind of create rows for you to walk up and down uh, the pitch. Uh, so if you need to go up there and clean the panels off or do maintenance, you're actually going to have somewhere to work. Whereas if you were just butting them up on a, um, on a pitch roof, you wouldn't have that option. Uh, next one, USB chargeable batteries versus regular chargeable batteries. Um, not really 
solar related but energy related so I'll do my best here uh, Christina um, has not made the investment in rechargeable batteries yet she was going to buy traditional rechargeable batteries but saw uh, that they are making USB batteries uh, do you have any opinion on these if you were going to buy rechargeables for the first time which would you choose they seem to have good reviews and the manufacturers claim they can be recharged from 500 to a thousand times some you charge individually and others can be charged in tandem in groups of four. So what this is, is you can buy four um, USB rechargeable AA batteries and the top flips open and there's a USB there and you plug it in and then you put the top back on and it's a AA battery. The AAA batteries have a mini USB port on the side of them. So you plug your USB in to your charging device and then that has little four mini USBs on the end that go into the side of each one of these AAA batteries. Um, I have never seen these before. I've never spoken to anyone that has them, but I do think it's a kind of an interesting concept. Now, I do question why I would pay $20 for four AAA batteries and another $20 for four AA batteries when I can buy 12 of each plus a charger for 40 bucks. Uh, so I can get, literally get three times the amount of batteries plus the charger that will charge either one for the same price as four of each. Um, the capacity of these direct USB charge batteries are about half of, for example, the Amazon rechargeable versions. Uh, you know, you get into like your Duracell and, and Energizer um, high-performance batteries. It's way more than double, but even the Amazon um, batteries are double the um, capacity. So you're gonna have, you're, these batteries are gonna have about half the life of what you're used to. Um, now the plus side is, if the, if the charger goes out, I can't charge any of those 24 batteries I just mentioned. Um, you know, the, these batteries don't ha have an independent charger, so if one battery goes out, I can still charge the other three. Um, I just need a mini USB or a USB-C cable, depending on which one, or for, actually for the AAA, or for the AA's, I just need a USB port that's powered and I can plug them right in. You know, so maybe, um, you know, honestly, thinking through this, I think the tech is probably sound. So I don't think this is like you're going to buy it, use it three times, that's not going to work anymore. But I probably wouldn't spring for these until they come down in price by about half. Uh, now, when they did that, I could see, you know, those little cigarette lighter adapters with the two USBs on there? If there was enough room to kind of throw two AA batteries, um, into or even one honestly you know you got a single double-a battery light right flashlight to like you your EDC or you keep in your car and you've got this USB triple-a battery that kind of sits there all the time as a backup uh, so so then now I've got a double-a a triple-a or whatever USB chargeable battery that stays in my vehicle or a couple of them and then all my EDC stuff or my car carry stuff is all based around that size battery. You know, in that scenario, I could say, hey, here's a here's a good use for this. Um, it, those batteries are probably gonna last longer than if I just took four AAA batteries and stuck them in my glove compartment. Um, you know, so maybe maybe that's a use case, but I would still probably wait. You know, I'd look for a deal. I'd try to get these when they're about, you know, $10 for a four pack instead of 20. That just seems like a lot of money to pay. Uh, for something with half the life of uh, a regular rechargeable. So hope that helps, Christina. Uh, if you guys have any more questions, get them over to Jack, and I'll get them answered. Thanks.
Next up, Doc Bones talking about something that could get this podcast banned on many platforms. Ivermectin, even talking about that is grounds to call you a white supremacist, a conspiracy theorist, and try to kill you and say that you're trying to kill people with a dangerous medication that you go and give to your dog on a daily basis. But what the, the question the person wants to know is, you know, Bones has pointed out that there are antibiotics that you can acquire that are for fish that are the same antibiotics as that people take. Not that you should go doing that on a daily basis, but for crisis medicine or something's good to know. And is there any um, veterinary product that could be used on humans? Doc's going to give you his official doctor answer and some other information, and I'm going to give you something to think about as well. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Plus, the co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Mike, who writes, There's been a lot of information coming out lately about ivermectin being an effective COVID prophylaxis as well as a post-infection treatment to reduce symptoms and adverse effects. Is there a veterinary off-market source of ivermectin that can be used and easily stored for home treatment and prophylactic use? What other uses could it have? Mike, there's been a lot of talk about ivermectin, and indeed its long history of safe usage for other problems, and the fact that it's cheap has led to its use in a number of other countries for both prevention and treatment of COVID-19. Ivermectin was first developed in the 1970s from a bacterium in a soil sample collected in the woods alongside a Japanese golf course in 1975. Interestingly enough, it appears that there's no other natural source, at least that has yet been found. In the intervening years, the effectiveness of ivermectin and its derivatives in treating parasitic worm infections transformed human and veterinary medicine, leading to a Nobel Prize for the scientists who first described it. At present, it's used for infections you've never heard of, like strongyloides and onchocerciasis, and in topical ointment to deal with things you may have heard of, like scabies, which is different, by the way, than crabs, and rosacea. It's an ingredient in HeartGuard for small pets, and available online in a number of equine and food-producing livestock versions. What about coronaviruses? There are a number of promising studies, but not enough to counter the fact that President Trump came out in favor of it, which is essentially the death knell for just about anything, including drugs like hydroxychloroquine and, yes, ivermectin. Want to get something banned? Just tell the press that Trump is for it. There appear to be two key ways in which the drug could prevent coronavirus replication. Now, first, it could prevent the virus from suppressing our cells' natural antiviral responses, Second, it's possible the drug prevents the spike protein on the surface of the virus from binding to the receptors that allow it to enter our cells. Along with the anti-inflammatory actions that are apparent from ivermectin's efficiency in treating rosacea, well, these may point towards useful effects in a viral disease that causes significant inflammation. The thing is that ivermectin has a pretty long safety record and not a lot of terrible outcomes from using it. There is some interesting data from India where it's being used despite a recent recommendation from the health ministry against it. Cases in Delhi, where ivermectin was begun on April 20th, dropped from 28,395 to just 2,260 on May 22nd. That's a 92% drop. Likewise, cases in Uttar Pradesh have dropped from 38,000 on April 24th to about 5,900 on May 22nd, a decline of about 84%. Delhi and Uttar Pradesh 
followed the All India Institute of Medical Sciences guidance published on April 20, 2021. That called for dosing of 0.2 milligrams of ivermectin per kilogram of body weight for three days. This amounts to about 15 milligrams per day for a 150-pound person or 18 milligrams per day for a 200-pound individual. The other three Indian states that adopted it are also down in cases. Goa is down from 4195 to 1647. Uttar down from 9624 to 2900. And Karnataka is down from 50,000 to 31,000. Goa adopted a preemptive policy, by the way, of mass ivermectin prevention for the entire adult population over 18 at a dose of about 12 milligrams daily of ivermectin for five days. Meanwhile, Tamil Nadu, another Indian province, announced on May 14th they are outlawing ivermectin in favor of the politically correct remdesivir. As a result, Tamil Nadu's cases are up in the same time frame from April 20th to May 22nd, 10,000, almost 11,000 cases, up now to 35,000 cases, more than a tripling since April 20th. Ivermectin has developed a following in the medical community as well. Dr. Peter Corey, a pulmonary specialist at St. Luke's Medical Center in Milwaukee, gave testimony in late 2020 in front of a Senate committee. He said the data show that ivermectin is effectively a miracle drug against COVID-19. Dr. Corey is a member of a group of doctors calling themselves the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. They published a review of the research that it claims that not only can ivermectin prevent COVID-19, it can also improve outcomes for sick COVID-19 patients. Now, you have to realize that professors at medical centers aren't normally given to claiming miracle drug status to anything, including miracle drugs. So this is pretty impressive. The critics say the studies are too small to believe. Small sample sizes can indeed lead to biased outcomes, but so do biased scientists, regardless of the study size. That's my concern, and I'm hoping that more data comes out soon that shows benefits from the use of ivermectin in the near future. It's highly premature to conclude absolutely that ivermectin has no place in COVID-19 treatment. Mike, with regards to veterinary sources, no veterinary ivermectin that I know of meets all of my strict criteria for survival medical storage. This is what I used when I evaluated fish antibiotics all those years ago. One, it must have one active ingredient, in this case only ivermectin. That rules out heart guard, for example, which is a combination drug. Two, it must be produced in human dosages. That rules out drugs made for horses and cattle or small animals like dogs and cats. Three, it must appear identical to the human version made by at least one pharmaceutical company. Haven't found one of those yet. Of course, ivermectin exists as a human drug and a doctor could prescribe it, but probably won't to avoid running afoul of the authorities. It's by prescription only and it looks like it's going to stay that way. Ivermectin certainly has potential, and some politicians like Rand Paul of Kentucky have asked the CDC to swiftly conduct further studies into it. The FDA can issue emergency use authorization for ivermectin, but it hasn't as of yet, and I doubt it will. If we can keep the politics out of it, however, it might be one day an option to help save some lives. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you believe in our mission to put a medically prepared person in every family, do us a favor and check out our entire line of quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So, if you Google ivermectin right now, you'll read all kinds of shit that says it's going to kill you if you take it for COVID, basically. 
And you'll also see that you shouldn't use veterinary ivermectin to treat or prevent COVID-19. I'm not saying that you should. And I'm definitely saying that Bones is right with the criteria he's put together with basically when you're looking for a veterinary replacement, uh, you're looking for something that's the same thing a person would take. And that, that makes it safe to use because you know the dosage. However, you can get ivermectin for veterinary use without a prescription that is nothing but ivermectin. And people that do things like breed dogs and all use it, and they dose it by weight using, in general, it's a liquid form, and they use a syringe. And I know people who breed dogs and use it for worming dogs all the time that way because it saves them a hell of a lot of money over buying a product like HeartGuard. And I'm just saying in the absolute worst-case scenario, I don't see why you couldn't use it. The uh, FDA will tell you, but the stuff made for horses is designed for horses, and the doses are concentrated. And yes, if you take an overdose of ivermectin, you can make yourself really sick or kill yourself. You can. You also can, you know, it's not like you have to be a genius to do a dose per kilogram measurement. But if you if you F it up, yes. And that's why you know a licensed medical practitioner, or even an unconventional one like Bones, would say don't do it. But you can get pure ivermectin. And just so you know that, at some point in the world, there may be a time when it's good to know that. I don't think that's now. I think there are a lot of ways, if you really wanted to take a prophylactic dose of ivermectin to help prevent COVID, which seems to be an absolute valid treatment, no matter what the people that make money off vaccines say, um, there's ways to get your hands on the actual stuff for humans. It's incredibly cheap. And for all their hysteria and nonsense, the prophylactic dose is one tablet a week. A week. A week. And they can keep running their mouth about the sample size being small or whatever, but it's because they're preventing the research on it. And I don't know that it works. My belief and my instincts are the preponderance of evidence is not just that it works, that it works fantastically well, that it works better than hydroxychloroquine and zinc even, and it certainly is less risky to a person as a form of prevention than the vaccine is. Because you can't find me a person, and I dare you to do so, that took a one pill of ivermectin a week and died. I dare you to do it. Anyway, let us proceed with a grab bag of questions for Tim the Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming to you from the workshop at toolmantim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back again to answer a grab bag of tool and handyman related questions for the expert council. So let's dive right in. The first question comes from Ken over on Facebook and he asked me, what are your most commonly used services, your best money maker and your favorite service to perform? So starting off, my most common service I perform is dump runs garbage hauling. It's one of the few services that I can do year round up here. Almost all my work here is seasonally based. Grass in the summer, snow in the winter, gutter cleaning in the fall, yard cleanups in the spring, but garbage hauling doesn't seem to stop. It slows down just a bit in the dead of winter, but if someone is looking for decent year round work with the potential to keep busy, garbage hauling is where it's at. 
Now, my best moneymaker in my area is snow removal because it scales so well. Taking on another residential client for snow removal only adds maybe three to five minutes to my overall route. I take that I take in the morning when I'm out doing snow. I've got 40-ish properties, so an extra three to five minutes really doesn't add much. And to be honest, even my busiest months for snow, I clear snow maybe 10 to 12 times at two to three hours a pop. My favorite service would be ride-on mowing and interior painting jobs where you see the progress in a day, but they're they're long enough to lose yourself in a good audiobook or a few podcasts. I enjoy a day-long or maybe even a two-day-long job where I can just work all day and get it done. Longer than that, and I start not looking forward to going back and continuing the job. I do it, but if I had my choice, I prefer a full day's work by myself in an empty rental or out mowing big properties where no one can interrupt me. So the next question comes from Joe the Pool Dude on Float, and he wanted to know how I liked the truck bed unloader that I picked up and whether it worked for heavy stuff like gravel. It didn't. Next question. Nah, just kidding. <laughs> it didn't work, but let me elaborate. So in Canada, we have a store called Princess Auto, and from my understanding, it's the closest thing we have to Harbor Freight. After having a lot of people recommend to me getting one of those hand-cranked bed unloaders, I picked one up and gave it a shot, because I'm tired of shoveling stuff. <laughs> it bent and it broke on the first attempt at unloading sand. It turns out that the one I'd got has a horrible design flaw. Everyone else I spoke to, the shaft is in one long, full, solid piece. And mine came in two pieces that you piece together. And as soon as I started cranking on it, it folded in half. So if you get one, stay away from the two-piece shaft design. So I, I ended up buying a 1987 Ford with a dump body instead. Hopefully that'll hold up a little longer. Frank Starr over on Float asks... What have you found to be the most durable and longest-lasting spray bottle available either on Amazon or direct mail order from the company? The latest ones I've been buying from the supermarket seem to only last three to six months before the spray mechanism wears out or the trigger won't work or spray any liquid anymore. So the best ones that I've used over the years is the Zet brand. If you're not familiar with that, they're a company that makes industrial janitorial type cleaners that are quite often available at big box stores and hardware stores. I'll send Jack an Amazon link. They last a long time. They're heavy duty. They do just what they're supposed to do. That's spray out cleaners. The only downside to them is their robust trigger system. It makes them a tad top heavy. And when the bottle is less than half full, it tends to want to tip over if you bump it a little bit but I'd rather have a durable, proper working spray bottle than one that is perfectly balanced, but won't last more than a month or two. <laughs> so finally, Matt asks on Facebook, what are you using for a wash solution for window cleaning? Tablets, concentrate, or are you making your own? So I use one of the least expensive products out there, Blue Dawn Dish Soap. When I first started teaching myself from YouTube videos, all the experts I watch recommended Blue Dawn Dish Soap. Not sure why blue, but that's what they recommended. <laughs> there are tons of products you can purchase that supposedly help clean windows properly, but I found just a cold water mix with three or four full long squirts of soap. Give it a good stir and mix, and you're good to go. All right, guys, that's it for me this week. If you haven't, take a minute and go by toolmantim.co, follow my social media links there, and stop by the YouTube channel every Sunday evening at 9 p.m. Central Time for my brand new weekly live stream called Talking Tools, 
where I share my one-year-later reviews on tools that I've reviewed in the past, Q&A collaboration sessions with fellow content creators, and most importantly, time to chat as a community and interact with one another. So as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Yeah, I just want to point out that Tim is on YouTube and Odyssey and Float and MeWe and other platforms, and he is working his ass off to build a following. Uh, I'm incredibly proud of how much he's done, how quickly in doing that. And whatever platform you're on, please see if you can find Tim Cook, Tim the Toolman Cook, and if you're on a platform and he's on a platform, give the guy a follow, man, because he's worth staying in touch with beyond what he does here at TSP. Next up, John Bush with a grab bag of crypto and privacy questions. Hey, friends, John Bush here from Live Free Academy. And today I'm going to answer a few questions about cryptocurrency, one of them uh, specifically about privacy. All right, so let's let's hit it. The first question comes from Calvin, and he says, I'd like to increase my digital privacy. Is the following a waste of time? One, purchase a new cell phone with cash because if I use a credit card, my name will be attached to it. Two, purchase prepaid cell phone cards with cash so my name isn't given to the service provider. Three, not use the cell phone number that comes with the cell phone and forward any calls to that number to somewhere not affiliated with my name. Four, use a My Studio cell phone number. Okay, so it all depends on how how private you want to go and what your goals are. You know, the whole prepaid cell phone purchasing with cash and then the prepaid wireless cards and stuff. It's going to be a lot of work, you know. And when I when I read this question. It reminds me of like what the mafia does and all the gangster movies that I like to watch. So it's just all about how private do you want to go and why. I like to think about privacy and freedom uh, with a balance, with a balancing spectrum. On the one side, we have total privacy, anonymity. You're a ghost, right? This all, and then on the other side, you have convenience. Presence, right? You got to balance privacy and convenience. Same thing with liberty and convenience, right? Like having a driver's license, it's inconvenient to get pulled over, but if you don't have a driver's license, you feel free. So everyone falls on a different spectrum. Everyone has a different aversion to risk. Everyone has a different preference to pursue privacy. Um, you know, there's folks in my community like Derek Bros and Ramiro Romani. Uh, Ramiro did the workshop with me. He taught internet privacy, and he's really serious about it. Me, as a father of two, as an entrepreneur running two businesses, just got this 10-acre property. That's a whole lot of work, too. You know, I tend towards somewhere in the middle when it comes to the convenience and the privacy, not all the way. I like to have automated services that integrate with Google Calendar and that automatically create a Zoom session whenever I have a consultation client book uh, a consultation with me. But if you really, really value your privacy, then sure, that sounds like a great route. It will be a lot of work. And I just want to remind everyone, too, like the NSA is collecting metadata on everything. 
But it's not as though the FBI has human agents that are tracking and tracing everything that every single one of us do, right? I imagine right now they're overwhelmed with MAGA and militia and the folks that stormed the Capitol on June 6th, even though that's turning out to be an FBI operation like we all suspected. But nonetheless, it's up to your own individual preferences is the advice that I would give. If you value privacy so much that you're willing to take the extra time and energy and effort and the extra friction that comes with opting out in that way when it comes to your cell phone, then by all means, then by all means, go for it. Okay, let's see. The next question here is from uh, from someone here, and they say, is the Internet of Things mining a viable way to get crypto, specifically looking at the MXC Match X M2 Pro IoT miner and helium mining as an affordable option? Is this snake oil? They're asking, is this a you know, is this a way to onboard into the crypto space? So uh, let me just share what what they're talking about. IoT or Internet of Things is this concept, this phenomenon where it's like smart grid, it's using 5G specifically is going to totally accelerate this, but using Wi-Fi interconnectivity to link up phones, street lamps, street lights, Amazon Echo, Amazon doorbell thing, your refrigerator, the car, your Tesla, the bike you'd ride, right? And I'm not a fan of this stuff. Uh, I see it as a part of the great reset, right? Now, some of it's centralized, but and some of it's just entrepreneurs that aren't concerned like I am about technocracy and the great reset and this panopticon society that we see coming into fruition. But some of it is nefarious. I, I don't think that these cryptocurrency companies and cryptocurrency developers that are doing Helium or this other platform necessarily are, but I don't want to pursue that, right? I like technology. I like using technology. I don't want to go so deep as to have every single thing pinging me from here and there. And I know Jack will probably disagree with me on this, but I do think that there are some health concerns about 5G and just the constant signals always all around, regardless of any health concerns, which can be debated, there's most definitely privacy concerns, and I can see where this is going. That being said, I, I'm not familiar with these platforms. I did some initial research on them, and the advice that I would give you, essentially how this works is you set up a like a router, okay, and then you join the Helium network. You keep the router active. The Helium network and associated entrepreneurs do business with services and entities that want to leverage the interconnectivity that comes with the Internet of Things. And in exchange for running this hotspot that allows different technologies to ping it and connect to it and send signals back and forth and send information, you're rewarded with a Helium token. right? And so the implication is you can then take that Helium token and trade it for... Bitcoin, and then you can take that Bitcoin and trade it for Pirate Chain if you want to. So my uh, brother was doing some research on this. It sounds like there's some decent guides and some decent reviews over it, so it's a legit thing, right? I wouldn't say that it's snake oil. Um, So at the end of the day, the advice that I would give is experience is the greatest teacher. So I saw that some of the helium miners, which are these hotspots, they run around 300 to $600. So at the end of the day, if you give it a try, 
uh, and it turns out to be a total bust, it's, it's not a huge loss. But the best thing to do with these type of things, with mining, with a new cryptocurrency, with a new wallet, with a new technology, is to just give it a try and see what it's like. And that will inform you as to whether or not it's a profitable venture. I think a lot of folks oftentimes try to kind of cut corners in order to get to like, they want the easy way to get cryptocurrency. I mean, at the end of the day, the best way to get cryptocurrency is to exchange value, to add value to other human beings and receive it in exchange for goods or services or to, you know, make a lot of money in your career or as, as an entrepreneur and then to buy the cryptocurrency outright. That's, those are my two, the best ways to get it in my opinion. Okay. The next question comes from a gentleman named Jason, and uh, he asks, is there a specific cryptocurrency or multiple currencies that I should consider when developing an online alternative health practice? He says he's a physician practicing in the VA healthcare system, but he also wants to develop alternative means of income. He's completing a course in functional medicine at the end of the year. He wants to set up an online business model. And he's asking if there's a particular cryptocurrency that he should um, that he should receive in exchange for whatever service he's going to be creating or online course or online information. I'm not exactly sure what the business model is going to be. Okay, so to answer that question, there's certain cryptocurrencies that that are more popular when it comes to commerce, right? Bitcoin used to be the go-to, but now the transaction fees are so high, they're a little bit down to $6, but still if you're sending if you're selling a you know even a $60 product that's still a 10% fee, that's not very viable, but everyone still lists Bitcoin. I list Bitcoin to sell Kratom and CBD and people surprisingly still use it, although more often than not people are using Bitcoin Cash. That's Bitcoin Cash is very similar to Bitcoin, except they managed to solve some of the scaling problems that led to these high transaction fees with Bitcoin by simply increasing the block size, meaning each block, which is a collection of the transactions that take place in the approximate 10 minutes before, can fit more information, more transactions. So you don't have to compete for a spot in the next block, which is a confirmation of your transaction, and it costs much less. In fact, it costs less than a penny. So Really, the thing to do for any online e-commerce is to offer up, is to make available the ability to purchase your products, your goods or services with cryptocurrency and use those cryptocurrency which are most often used in commerce. And in my experience, those are Bitcoin Cash, Dash, which stands for digital cash. Litecoin tends to get used a little bit in there. I like to throw in Ethereum just because I like to collect Ethereum myself. It does have the high gas fees and transaction fees as well, but people do pay for it occasionally. And then, you know, if you're part of the survival podcast community or the agorist community or the libertarian community, throw in a little Monero there. It's a privacy coin. And you can also offer Pirate Chain. Pirate Chain has a solid and growing community. It's very popular within the TSP community. They have this website, Armada. I just recently listed Bray Botanicals there. I actually get a pretty good handful of clients that purchase Kratom and CBD and Delta 8 with Pirate Chain. So that's what I would do. You don't, there's not any specific cryptocurrency that you would want to use that has to do with healthcare, for example. Just use the ones that most people use for commerce. And then when it comes to setting up an online store, I don't know how deep you've dived into this, but Shopify is a very easy solution. 
There are plugins that enable you to accept cryptocurrency with Shopify. I use WooCommerce. It's a little bit more tricky, but it's more customizable, and it's not out of reach from someone that knows general web development or using computers well. Um, and there's a couple different a couple different plugins that will allow you to generate invoices. The thing to consider when you're doing an online store and you're accepting cryptocurrency is you don't want to just put an address and say like send your order total to this address because then you can you can't link up whoever sent you that order total with the order. Now you can if you create a form, but now you're having to do manual work to go back and track it down. So you want to find a plugin that generates an invoice to pay and then it links up with the order so you can tell that this payment, this cryptocurrency payment, this is especially important when you're using Monero or Pirate Chain because you can't go to the blockchain to go figure out what was what. It links up the transaction with the order. Two plugins that I like to use, one one does Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. It's called Blockonomics. Blockonomics. And the other one that does Pirate Chain and a whole different multitude of cryptocurrencies is called Cryptocurrency Checkout. Cryptocurrency Checkout. Both of these are non-custodial. With Cryptocurrency Checkout, I don't even think you need to make an account or tie it to your identity. With Blockonomics, you do need to make an account, but you can use a dummy email address if you'd like. Okay, this is John Bush uh, with the... Entry for the Expert Council. If you want to learn more about cryptocurrency and Internet privacy, I strongly encourage you to check out the recording of a workshop that I did about a month ago. Ended up producing over 17 hours worth of content. 17 hours worth of content. You can get access to that replay at CryptoAndPrivacy.com. That's CryptoAndPrivacy.com. Thanks. I, I'm just going to say I'm I'm really glad that we have John on the expert council now, and it's one of those dumb moments where you know I reached out and said, "Hey, do you want to do this?" And the second I did it, before he even started providing answers, and of course he said yes immediately. I was like, "What are what is wrong with you, Jack? Why didn't you put him like on the council not just a while ago, but when you started it? I knew John all the way back then." I, I don't know. I mean, that's one of those things that's right in front of you and you don't see it sometimes. John's awesome, and I'm glad he's with us. Anyway, um, another John that uh, I had a lot of respect for a lot of things that he did and a lot of things he said, and I certainly didn't agree with everything that came out of his mouth for damn sure, but uh, I did respect him and see him as a force for liberty and a force for good and a force for true anarchism in the world was John McAfee. And as I said, I'm not going to comment on the circumstances of his death beyond just telling you, if you don't know, if you've been under a rock somewhere and you don't know what happened, he had been arrested in Spain. I'm not even clear on what he was arrested for. Uh, the United States government wanted him extradited, and the, US, uh, the Spanish government had agreed to extradite him. And in, in, in doing so, uh, shortly thereafter, before he got a chance to be extradited, he ended up dead uh, from being, you know, supposedly hanging himself, committing suicide in a cell in a Spanish prison instead of by the side of his wife, where he should have been at the last breath of his life if it was time. And it, I don't think that it was. But I'm not going to start going off crazy conspiracy theories or anything like that because I don't do that. That's not what I do. Um, I often find that what the official explanation is is bullshit and a lie. But I don't just go throwing that out there to throw it out there. I say, it's my gut, my opinion, and uh, if more information comes out about this, and, it, and if it advances our mission here, which is 
self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty for you, maybe we'll talk about it. But what I wanted to talk about today was one of his quotes. He said, the ones who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. And John kind of, one way or another, no matter how this actually happened, sort of kind of went down, at least in the minds of those that loved him, in a blaze of glory. Uh, giving the middle finger to the government nonstop, living defiantly, and, and living a pretty amazing life with some amazing stories behind it. Um, but I want to point out why he was able to be crazy enough to think that he could change the world and to do so by You know, if you look at the way he changed the world from that standpoint, it's by how many people decided, I'm going to do effing something, right? Because if he can do all this, like, totally out there shit, then I can do, I can do something. I can start up a little business selling Kratom, John Bush, right? Like, I'm not saying that's why John did it, but stuff like that. And that one little thing, little thing here or there, it doesn't really seem like it moves the needle much, but when it's thousands or tens of thousands of people, you've changed the world. But how did he get to a point where he could live that way so defiantly and so openly for so long before it finally caught up with him? Well, he became a billionaire. He built the McAfee security software that's on millions of computers today. Cashed his company in and went off and did whatever the hell he wanted. In other words, in the words of one of my favorite shirts that John Willis from SOE Tactical Gear sent me, he did the work. The shirt says, do the work. He was a person willing to do the work. He built something of such value that he was able to become incredibly wealthy and then use that wealth to live the way that he did. I'm just going to say, had, had he not done that and said all the things that he said over his life, Anyway, a hell of a lot less people would have paid attention to him. Success breeds confidence. And not just confidence in the person who has the success, but confidence in those who observe the success. And if you want to change the world, you got to start by not being afraid of your work boots and your overalls. Whether that's direct or metaphorically. Because a lot of times, a lot of work doesn't necessarily involve work boots, work gloves, and overalls. Sometimes it does, but still work. The people that change the world are not just the ones who are crazy enough to think they can, but the ones who are willing to do the work to achieve something that others never have. To do something that's never been done before, or do something in a way that's better than it's ever been done before, and to stick with it long enough to prove it, and to make it something that other people see value in. The people that do the most to change the world, they're never politicians. They're never activists. They're always, they always have been, and they always will be, entrepreneurs. Think of a, a name of a political person from the past that you value. right? That you, that, and I want you to think of their individual contribution. You're going to have to go through, you know, Unless you're talking about the founders that wrote the Constitution, right? To find someone that's made the impact on America that, let's say, Henry Ford did. You're going to have to go back to the founders. I mean, really think about the impact on the daily life, and not just the impact... 
but the transformation of what it meant to be a middle-class American before and after the automobile assembly line. And there are some people from politics, the more I think about it, that have made those transformational things happen. But most of the major transformations of the world have been accomplished by entrepreneurs. Refrigeration. How big of a deal is the ability to refrigerate and freeze food in your own home? It wasn't that long ago that only rich people could do it, and it wasn't long, much longer before that that no one could. Think about what you're able to do today with a smartphone. The little smartphone you pay somewhere between a few hundred dollars to a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks for, depending on what you buy, has more computing power than all the banks of computer at NASA that put a man on the moon in 1969, and you carry it around in your pocket. You're listening to, to this, possibly on that device. I'm broadcasting around the world to a quarter million people every time I put out an episode, somewhere between a couple hundred, ten, twenty to 250, sometimes we have even bigger hits, and but somewhere in that range, more than 200,000 people hear my voice. I'm using a $95 microphone made by a company called Samsung, recording with a free software product called Audacity, and using a personal computer to do my editing that I bought 11 years ago and still works. All the entrepreneurs that made those technologies possible transformed the world because they believed that they could. Now, do you need to do something that big to change the world? The truth is you do not. Raising your children outside of their system changes the world. Standing up and taking care of yourself instead of relying on the government like a domesticated animal changes the world. Every person that steps out of the box and defines their life their way changes the world. And you do it in ways you can never know. My conversation with our guest yesterday, realizing, okay, somebody came here and met him, and then they talked, and then months later, he makes a comment trying to help somebody online, and that guy says, hey, this guy knows his stuff, and a business relationship is formed. It's not exactly what I'm talking about, but it is the type of way that the butterfly effect transforms a society for every person that steps up and does something a little bit different. You have no idea. The difference in the life that your great-grandchildren, who you may never know, will have because you homeschooled their grandfather. That has set in motion something that will, will go through the generations of history and transform the world. In the words of John McAfee, the ones who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. In the worlds of Jack Spirico, but you got to do the work. And sometimes the work is really big, and sometimes the work is hard, but it's just about you and the people around you. Uh, next up, if you like to show in the work that we do, please consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Um, they're really in, uh, they're in a less expensive way to, uh, to help us out because 
if you're going to buy something online and you just start there, you help us out no matter what you buy, and you were going to buy it anyway, so it didn't cost you any more money. It barely takes any more time. Uh, however, there are items I have reviewed there, and today's item of the day, I won't say much about it, but it is the Coleman Self-Lock Tape Measure. I, I found this thing years ago when people started asking me, what's the best tape measure? Because they all suck. And I was like, you know what? They all do suck. They all eventually break, and they're all a pain in the ass. And I found the Coleman, and it's 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 K-O-M-E-L-O-N, and it works different than any other tape measure I've ever seen on the market. I think some people are starting to do this today, but they were the first ones. You pull the tape measure out, and you let go of it, and it stays out. You don't have to lock it. It self-locks. You push the button to retract it. Well, that's smart because I've never like opened a tape measure and go, I really need it to immediately come back in. I didn't open it to measure something. They're also very affordable. They come in 12, 16, and 25-foot lengths. I'm not a guy that has much utility for a 16-foot tape measure. Uh, I bought a two-pack of the 12s and one pack of the uh, one single on the 25 for larger measuring uh, things. And the 12 is really compact. I bought a bunch of them because this is one of the things I lose. I lose sh Sharpie markers, nail clippers, and tape measures. And I mean just like crazy. And that's why I don't want to buy expensive ones, but I do want to buy good ones. Check out the Coleman. I think you'll really appreciate it. And with that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day today. Song of the day is uh, by uh, Stained, uh, who many of y'all may know that band and some of you won't. They're more like a grunge metal band. Uh, but the lead singer, at least for a time, and still kind of sort of is, they'd still work together, Aaron Lewis, like the guy that does Granddaddy's Gun, the country artist, He's an amazing voice, and he can cross between kind of this grunge metal world and country seamlessly. It's amazing. In fact, a couple songs on his first country album were songs he did with Stain. He, they barely changed. This song is so close to being country, but it can't be because it's not. You're like, yeah, that's a grunge metal song, but you're like, boy, you changed just a few things. and Yeah, this song's called Something to Remind You. And it's about a person that's reached the end of their life. And it's about all of, this week's all been songs about kind of the warrior inside of men and the scars and the wounds that they feel along the way. And that's what this song is about. Here I am at the end and here's all of the pain that I've been through and hopefully you'll remember me when I'm gone. Um, it's an awesome song. It's kind of in a way a heart-wrenching song as well. And it is an amazing piece of vocal work by Aaron Lewis. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. So this is it. I say goodbye to this chapter of my ever-changing life. And there's mistakes The path is long And I'm sure I'll answer for them when I'm gone So when the day comes and the sun won't touch my face Tell the ones who cared enough that I finally left this place
That's been so cold. Look in my face. All the stories it will tell, I can't erase. The road is long. Just one more song. A little something to remind you when I. So they say, and some believe that no good deed goes unpunished in the end, or so it seems. So when the day comes and the sun won't touch my face, tell the ones who care. It's been so cold. Look in my face. All the stories it will tell, I can't erase. The road is long. Just one more song. A little something to remind you when I. Sure, I'll answer for them when I. 